Well, I'm quite enjoying Calvary Unplugged. How about you? Good morning to you! In 1875, Joseph Scriven wrote, we have, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. In 1905, Charles Albert Tindley wrote, Temptations, hidden snares, often take us unawares. And we wonder why the test when we've tried to do our best. And as we sung this morning in 2013, Matthew Mayer wrote, Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found is where you are. And where you are, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. Now, those are three different centuries and and three different writers, but there's one common theme. The family of God facing temptation. The family of God facing temptation. Our passage today is going to say something that too many saints too easily forget. 1 Corinthians 10 teaches that being one of God's people is not an amulet of protection against temptation, transgression, or the Lord's discipline. Uh, Today's text teaches that temptation is our common challenge. Temptation is our common challenge. Challenge. And so with that in mind, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 10, which is on page 1217 of the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, you can grab one of ours, page 1217, 1 Corinthians 10. And as we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Father, we invite You as Lord of this church to speak to us, Your people, through Your Spirit inspired Word. We ask that You would uh, reshape our thinking. Help us to understand temptation as a common challenge because the enemy tries so hard to make us believe that our struggle is unique and uniquely impossible. But that is not true. There is no no temptation that is not common to man. We will understand from our text today. And yet, none of us gets a free pass at temptation. The Lord Jesus indeed was taken and He was tempted for 40 days until the devil went away and tempted Him again at an opportune time. And if what that is true of our Savior, how much more so of us. But what is different is that we, we give in where He overcame. And so I pray today that you would speak to us with, with, a, with a clarity and a clarion call to be careful with temptation and to be able to be overcomers through Christ who overcame. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That's what the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 15 together. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, that is the Jewish people, all passed under the cloud and all passed through the sea, that is the Red Sea, and were all baptized, metaphorically speaking, into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. Indeed, manna rained down, didn't it? And they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. 
Nonetheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put the Lord to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common unto man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, God will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. We talk today, providentially, I didn't time it this way, this just happens to be the Sunday we're in this text. And it happens to be the Sunday before the new year, and it happens to be the Sunday that I always encourage you to read the Bible. And if you'll notice on that bookmark, you're going to notice that a whole bunch of your Bible is Old Testament. Sometimes saints wonder, why bother reading the Old Testament? 929 chapters of hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names and obscure places we can't identify on a map. Why don't we just stick to the New Testament? It's shorter, it's clearer, and after all, we no longer keep the ceremonial law. Jesus fulfilled that. But friends, that's unbiblical thinking. The New Testament tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed, theopanutos, and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, Paul was primarily referencing the Scriptures they currently were possessing, which was what? It was the Old Testament, my friends. And so the Bible is saying that the Old Testament is incredibly useful to us as New Covenant Christians. All of those Old Testament stories are of paramount importance to New Testament saints. Verse 6 is very clear on this. Don't miss this. Verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for who? For us, for church saints, that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 11 repeats, repeats the refrain of heaven. Verse 11 says, Now these things happened to them, those Old Testament saints, as an example. And they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so friends, the Old Testament is not peripheral. It is vital to the New Testament saint. The Old Testament is two-thirds of our Bible, and from its pages we can draw upon a myriad of spirit-selected, sovereign examples. 
For instance, when the Bible wants to explain to Christians about faith, and faith is an important thing to Christians, right? We are saved by grace through So it's an essential element of what it means to be a New Testament Christian. Where does it go to explain faith? Well, it goes back to the Old Testament. In Hebrews chapter 11, it lists the hall of faith and it goes back every time to the saints of old. Let me give you a little uh, review of that situation. Hebrews 11 says, By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain. That's taking you to Genesis. And by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Again in Genesis. And by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. And then it goes farther in the Old Testament. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as a son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. And then it gives you a, a whirlwind tour of the whole rest of the Old Testament. And what more shall I say? Do I, not, I do not have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. When it wants to explain faith, where does it take us? To the Old Testament. When the Bible wants to explain God's sovereign power, the first verse of the Old Testament demonstrates it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you understand Genesis 1 at face value, well friend, if you understand that, that there is a God who can create everything from nothing by simply saying it needs to be, No pre-existent materials, no helpers alongside him, no angels had to work overtime. He just said it, and the universe did it. Well, if you can understand a God like that in the opening verse of the Bible, you're going to have no problem with a God who can make the sun stand still, or the walls of Jericho fall, or the dead in Christ rise. Amen? When the Bible wants us to understand God's sovereign grace, another critical concept to the Christian, uh, the Bible, uh, when teaching about grace, is trying to tell us that God reaches out to us not because we're worthy, but because we're needy. That's grace. Okay, And so, if you want to understand grace, you have to go no farther than the Old Testament, one of the first books of the Old Testament, and you meet a man named Jacob. And he's a great patriarch, except he's not so great, is he? The grace of God is what makes Jacob the Israel of God. God in His great grace transforms Jacob whose name means deceiver because it is his character. It literally means a heel grabber. He comes out of the womb trying to trip up the nearest person he can find who happens to be his own twin brother. And this happens all through his life. He cunningly finagles that brother out of his birthright and then he callously cons his dying father into doling out his brother's promised blessing. And yet by sovereign grace alone, because Jacob needed it, not because Jacob deserved it, the Bible says God loved Jacob. God in His great grace transformed Jacob the deceiver into the Israel of God. And Jacob's twelve sons will form the twelve tribes of Israel. And so if you want to see what grace looks like, you should look no farther than Jacob the patriarch. If you want to understand the doctrine of God's providence, uh, consider the Old Testament book of Esther. How one woman from one family, what kind of family? A family that didn't have the faith to return to Israel when God freed everyone under Cyrus to return under Zerubbabel. They said, no, I'd rather stay where it's easy. And then it got hard. 
And for such a time as this, there was Esther, able to deliver her people when she herself wasn't part of the most obedient of those people. If you want to understand the holiness of God, consider the Old Testament's elaborate temple ritual. You know those books that we kind of blow past, and this is so many cubits, and this happens, and on this day you do this, and you can't. And if you start taking the totality of the mentality of what it is saying in those texts, you're going to see this elaborate Old Testament temple ritual, and it's going to starkly and graphically uh, reinforce the vast separation between a holy God and sinful man. You're going to see that, that really uh, sinful man could only go to God's holy temple one day. One man, one time, once a year, Yom Kippur. And they tell us he had to tie a rope around his waist because he might die in the process, and you've got to bring him back out. Now we could go on and on and on and on about every major doctrine of Scripture, but the point is, verse 6, my friends, these things took place as examples for us. You need to know the Old Testament because from it you get graphic examples of God and the things that keep us from God. Which brings us to our first point from our Old Testament examples. It's found in your bulletin. You can follow along. In the center of your bulletin is an outline. And we're on point one now. Being part of God's family does not mean that we always live in ways that please God. Being part of God's family does not mean we always live in ways that please God. So if you've ever gone to church and been hurt by a church person, understand point one. Being part of God's family does not always mean we are living in ways that are pleasing God. Can you say amen to that in your own life? Yeah. Why can we not extend grace and forgiveness to those who do it to us then? Number one, being part of God's family does not mean that we are always living in ways that please God. The Bible says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. And they were overthrown in the wilderness. Do you understand that the Israelites were God's chosen people? They were His prized possession. They were the objects of His great redemption through all the miracles of the Exodus. Uh, for these precious people of promise, the Red Sea parted. A great cloud guided. Uh, manna rained down daily, providing nourishment to millions who would have died of starvation in an inhospitable wilderness. Water flowed from rocks to quench their thirst. And though they knew it not, these provisions were not just from their heavenly Father. They were blessings of God's eternal Son. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown. In the wilderness. Now, verses 6 through 10 are going to show us that being part of God's family does not mean that we are always living in ways that are pleasing to God. 
In classic British understatement, (laughs) the Bible says, with most of them, God was not pleased. Most of them? How most of them is the most of them? It's nearly all of them, friends. Who among the millions of slaves released from captivity in the Exodus? Who among all those who drank water from rocks split by Moses through the grace of Jesus? Who among the myriads who saw the Red Sea part when they were standing between the Red Sea and the Pharaoh seeing red and the Red Sea parted and they walked across and Pharaoh's army was wiped away? because the wheels came off his plan that day. Uh, Who among those millions who daily were cooled because God's plan of sending them was a pillar of cloud? When you're standing in the desert, that's a really great way to be led. You can see it. At night, there's a blazing fire. And by day, there's a cloud. And in the heat of the day, the cloud keeps you from being sweltered. It's such a gracious God who gives guidance in a way that is affirming and comforting even as it's necessary. And yet... Who of those who were daily cooled by the pillar of the cloud actually ever entered the promised land? And the Bible tells us who, and it was two. Two. Two adults ever entered, and all the rest of the redeemed perished, never experiencing God's best for their lives. What does that tell us if that's an example? It tells us many things. You see, only Caleb and Joshua ever made it to what God had for them as a great blessing they could have been possessing. Even Moses never made it. His decision to presume a fusion of his glory and God's glory in saying, listen you rebels, must we bring forth water out of this rock? And then Moses raised his arm and he struck the rock twice with his staff. But if you read the story, God said just just speak to the rock. And it was supposed to be 100% God's power and 0% Moses' power. The miracle was to be spoken humbly once, not struck theatrically twice. Do you see the difference? And so neither Moses nor any of the other adult Israelites for whom God loved passionately He rescued amazingly. He provided for providentially. They ever experienced God's blessing fully. Instead, they all missed out on God's best. New Testament saints better not miss this. For you and I, we've been called by the Holy Spirit out of the nations. Not because we were worthy, but because we were needy. And He's calling a people unto Himself of every tribe and every tongue. And He's called us by some amazing act of grace. And He's brought us out of the the bondage through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We can be baptized expressing publicly what has transpired in our hearts privately. We can feed on the Word of God daily. We can drink from the living waters just as the saints in the Exodus did. And yet, we can miss God's best. If they miss the promised land, well, so too it is true for me and you that being a part of God's family does not mean we're always living in ways that please God. Now, the question becomes, were all these folks saved? That's a good question. And uh, I think it looks a lot like our church, okay? So Israel, not all Israel was Israel. 
Paul says in Romans. But a lot of Israel was Israel, right? And so in the church, there's this mixed multitude. They're saved and lost, and not everyone who's, who's walking today is going to walk to the end. And, you know, they, they left us because they weren't apart from us. Uh, they weren't truly a part of us. But, but surely some of the <laughs> Exodus generation had experienced heart regeneration. Clearly, some of them were part of the family of God. In fact, most of them were almost certainly part of the family of God. I know at least one guy was who didn't make it. His name was Moses. Okay? He is specifically listed in Hebrew 11's Hall of Faith. And so we know he was redeemed. And yet, Moses never made it. He missed God's best, because being part of God's family does not mean that we always live in ways that please God. He missed God's blessing. Why? Because of his disobedience. There's no question of why he missed it. He missed it because of his disobedience. So I want you to remember the context of 1 Corinthians 10, and the answer to that is, well, it's the back of 1 Corinthians 9. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul has just said something. We had a week off for Christmas, so we might forget it. But, but go back to 1 Corinthians 9, look back at what he had just said. Because that's the context of this excursus into the Exodus. And in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body to keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I should be disqualified. Now, we know that Paul is not worried about losing his salvation. He's written extensively in Romans that nothing can separate a true believer from the love of God. And he's taught us that our merit before God is only Christ's merits before God. That we need the imputed righteousness of Christ in order to be before a holy God. So he's not saying you can be unsaved if you are unfaithful. But here's what Paul is saying to the family of God. To the redeemed of God. Paul is concerned that a true believer... Indeed, even a gospel preacher, that he could live carelessly and, and callously, indeed rebelliously, and he would miss the prize of obedience entirely. You see that? The context of 1 Corinthians 10 is the end of 1 Corinthians 9. And so that's going to bring us to our second point today. Being part of God's family does not mean that you and I are immune to temptation transgression, and indeed, God's discipline. Being part of God's family does not mean that you are immune from temptation. Have you ever felt tempted as a Christian? Yeah. Have you ever transgressed as a Christian? Yeah, I'm the only one. That's okay. I'll, I'll love with that. I'm the only non-liar. The truth is going to set me free, okay? Have you ever been disciplined by God as a Christian? My hand stayed up on all three. It's just a fact, Jack. Number two, being part of God's family does not mean we're immune to temptation, transgression, and indeed God's discipline. I want you to see that all of these folks in the Exodus generation, they experienced the five-fold advantages of verses 1 to 5. Listen for a second to what they had possessed. They were all under the cloud. They were all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. The, 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 the favored folks of fivefold blessings of heaven were the very same folks who have a fourfold rebellion against the God of heaven in this same passage. 
Look at verse 6. Now, those, these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Now here's the third thing that tripped them up. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And here's the fourth thing. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. So the example of Israel's experience in the wilderness should warn us of what can happen to people who hear the Word of God and who see the works of God, but who nonetheless do not walk in obedience to Jesus in this. You can hear it, you can see it, and you can still transgress against it. What does that mean if you're a Christian today? It, it means that, that, that we can be dedicated to Jesus as a baby. We can be raised in a home that shares the Gospel to us intentionally and repeatedly. We can attend youth group uh, weekly. We can go on mission trips yearly. We can go to Teen Doctrine with Mr. Tom. Uh, we can give generously. We can attend church faithfully. But if we rebel defiantly, repeatedly, willfully, and intransigently, we're going to miss out on God's best for our life. Not salvation, that's based in Christ, but, but His blessing. We will miss out on something we could be possessing. So we go back to last week's passage. Do you not know that all in the race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So friends, what were the temptations that our spiritual forefathers forfeited in the desert? What disqualified these saints from God's best? Now there are four sins specifically cited in our scripture today. And they are this. Idolatry, Sexual immorality, grumbling, and putting God to the test. Let's say that again. What were the four things that kept an entire generation from possessing their blessing? It was idolatry, sexual immorality, grumbling, and putting God to the test. So how are we doing in these four areas? In those four areas... How are we doing today? And you may be saying, well, I'm not an idolater. I don't have a golden calf at home. I don't bow before uh, some other god. Well, well, idolatry in the Bible is putting anything less than God ahead of God. And, and, and we can be idolatrous in the 21st century without being religious at all. Uh, uh, you can put your career ahead of your Christ, and that's idolatry. Uh, you can prioritize your, your hobbies over the heavenlies. Uh, idolatry can be worshiping our family above our Heavenly Father, where we make the family into something that is, should be the place of God in our life. Uh, idolatry can be worshiping the American Trinity, the American Trinity of our comfort, our convenience, and our security. And we can put that ahead of seeking first Christ and His kingdom and His righteousness. Uh, idolatry is putting anything less than God in the place that belongs to God. And the Corinthians struggled with this, didn't they? Sure they did. You and I struggle with this. Because there's nothing new under the sun. 
there's a professor, and she used to be a, a, a very uh, antithetical to the things of Christ before she met Christ, and she's had a, a radical reversal in her life. You might read some of her works, but her name is Rosaria Butterfield. And she speaks for many in our day when she writes this, One very difficult aspect of sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me. My sin feels like life to me. My heart is an idle factory, and my mind is an excuse-making factory. You see, friends, the temptation to idolatry is a common challenge. The second thing our forefathers struggled with was, was sexual immorality. And, and, and that's what they struggled with in the desert. And when they were over in a cosmopolitan city, it didn't get any better. This was something the saints in Corinth were pounded relentlessly on, and we've talked about extensively in other chapters. There were a thousand temple prostitutes of Aphrodite, and, and then there were those of Apollos, and they would come down nightly and beckon their wares in Corinth to Corinthianize, meant to be a sexually immoral person. It was an insult to call somebody, you're a Corinthian. The city made a large share of its revenue from the coffers of these temples that were nothing more than really brothels. And, and so business was good in Sin City. In like manner, in 2019, is not sexual immorality sort of all around us? Uh, it bombards us. You don't have to go find it. It comes and knocks on your door. Uh, we can't watch TV or a movie without it sort of beckoning seductively. Uh, our smartphones and laptops make the availability of sexual immorality ubiquitous and relentless. Indeed, sexual temptation is our common challenge. We understand how, how they're simultaneously and insidiously equal parts seductive and yet destructive, and yet they're, they're always there whispering like the sirens calling the ships onto the rocks. The song is beautiful. The decision leads to a collision that isn't so beautiful. I think most of us, we understand the pull of idolatry. And we understand the lure of sexual immorality. So I'm not going to put a lot of focus there today. We, we see these things almost intuitively. But friends, the next two temptations are so minor to us and so endemic within us, but they deeply grieve Jesus. And so we must adjust. Listen again to verses 9 and 10 for two things that you wouldn't expect to be on the list that destroyed a generation. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. What's the Bible talking about here? The Bible's talking about the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 21. So I'm going to ask you for just a moment to turn to Numbers 21. It's on page 164 of the Blue Pew Bible. Numbers 21. And I want you to look at verse 4. The Bible says, From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And what happened? The people became impatient on the way. God's people did not want to wait on God's timing. They said, okay, you're God, now we want to be God. 
Okay, this is where you're taking us, so let's get there faster, better, my way, right away. God's people did not want to wait on God's timing. I think perhaps the hardest verse in all the Bible is Psalm 27.14. Psalm 27.14, I think, is on your screen. It says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. The waiting is active. It isn't melting. Oh, I'm just waiting and falling apart. No, it's be strong in the Lord. It, it, it's, it's take heart. It's have courage. Be strong and courage. But you're waiting on the... And you know what? His timing is different than my timing. The speed at which he wants to correct a situation is not the speed in which I want to correct a situation. I like to diagnose a problem and fix it. And yet the Bible tells me to wait on the Lord. And like five words later it says, wait on the Lord. Now here's the opposite of waiting on the Lord. It's in that other verse. God's people became impatient on the way. What way were they on? God's way. Who was leading them? God. Who had a perfect plan? God. And what did they want? Just to speed up a bit. We're tired of the same old, same old and all the challenges of every day. They didn't want to wait on God. And what happens when you don't want to wait on God? You start speaking against God, don't you? Because they're so different from us. There's no temptation that isn't common to man. I want you to look at verse 5. And the people spoke against God. You know, the God who saved them, who redeemed them, who's providing for them, who's making it rain bread, providing rotter from rocks, who's keeping away the enemies, who's doing all this every day, shielding them with a cloud, like blessing, 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 blessing. I'm not happy because my timing of the way I think the script should go. And the people of God spoke against God, and then they spoke against God's leader. Well, well not only are we mad at God, but you're standing here and here's, He's not. So let's talk about, you're, you're not doing this right either. We want more and we want it now. And they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. There was food. They just didn't like it anymore. And then the Lord was so pleased with the people that he created that he started blessing them because they brought to his attention what he didn't know. Is that what it says? The Joel Osteen Bible? No, verse 6, it says, and the, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many in Israel died. You want something to complain about? God can help you with that. Until you get over complaining. Hey friends, let's not put the Lord to the test. Let's not demand our way right away, but instead, in humility, let's submit to Christ's authority because He knows the way. He shows the way. Do you know why? Because He is the way. And you and I, we tend to get in the way when we want to have our way. And great troubles in Corinth and great troubles at Calvary in our history have come when we don't want to wait on the Lord. This passage is a sobering reminder that there is a relentless temptation for us to test God by our impatience despite His grace upon us. We have this temptation to sputter and mutter though we know better. When someone else does it, we go, I can't believe they're so unspiritual. By the way, I'm really upset about this. We don't want to fall into the folly of Job, do we? Job got so much right, so much through the story. He endured so many hardships. He shined for Jesus. He was the one, he said, God said, out of everyone on the earth, this is the guy that we should use as the example case. And yet, 
Job reaches a place where even Job, the famous patience of Job, reached an end. And his mouth started to go. Because once you lose your patience, you lose your, your tongue. It's full of restless evil. And so God had words with Job. And, and, and God had to summon Job and, and, and put his words on trial. The words that were putting God on trial. And God asked, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined the measurements? Surely you know, because you've got it all together, and we've got to move faster and move your way. Uh, who stretched the line upon it? And, and where were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? And when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or, or who shut the sea with doors when it burst forth from the womb? And, and when I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars in the doors, and said, Thus far shall you come and no further. And that's sure, and this is sea. And that's up to me, because he's God. And, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep sea? We just today sent things down to say there is the bottom of the ocean. And, and this is where, but we haven't gone all the way down. And he's saying, I, I know it intimately. Declare, Job, do you know this? Friends, here's a question for you. Will not the judge of all the earth be right? It's an old question. It's a rhetorical question. Of course he will. Can we not learn to say what, come what may, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now the Holy Spirit says it's not just putting God to the test, but it was grumbling that caused them to miss out on God's blessing. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Look at that word, the destroyer. Have you ever seen that in the Bible before? You have if you've been paying attention. The destroyer was the very same angel that slew the firstborn of Egypt and somehow the destroyer is set upon God's own people. Why? Why was the destroyer sent among God's own people? Because they... How do we feel about grumbling in the church? I don't like the temperature. I don't like the pews. I'm not sure I like you. How do we feel about grumbling in the church? We feel like it's our right. We feel like it's our sport. And God destroyed a generation. Because He's like, I've done so much for you. And all you want to do is chirp and squawk about what you want and when you want it. We think grumbling is a right. God says it's a sin. One of us is right, and one of us is sinning. I know in my own life, by God's grace, sometimes I'm able to do the right thing. And I grumble about it the whole time I'm doing it. I grumble because some part of me just isn't very humble. Is that not true for you too? God gives grace to the humble. And He disciplines the proud. You can be humble or you can grumble. But if you grumble, you will stumble. And God may discipline us. This is where Jesus is so wonderfully different than us, friends. 
You see, Jesus was wrongly accused. He was actually fully right. Most of the time we get in a situation where we're partially right, they're partially right. We might be more right than they are, but we see our right more than we see their right. But Jesus was 100% right. He was wrongly accused. And yet He offered no answer, and instead He turned the other cheek as they struck unjust blow after unjust blow. Friends, if God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, and that has become an axiom that many Christians embrace, that God is most satisfied uh, in us when we are, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, I wonder how many times I have robbed God of glory and myself of blessing that I otherwise would be possessing because I did the right and grumbled about it the whole time. Friends, being part of God's family does not mean we're immune to temptation, to transgression, and indeed to God's discipline. The saints of our story all died because of their disobedience. They did not lose their spiritual inheritance, but they missed out on the great blessings they could have been possessing because the Lord disciplines those He loves. You're going to see later in the next chapter, at Corinth, there were some saints who were making a mockery out of the Lord's Supper. And they were turning a holy moment into a drunken buffet. And uh, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit says, well, this is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have, yeah, have died. God wants His church to not be full of murmuring and grumbling and, and, and testing of God and immorality and idolatry. And the Bible even speaks about there's a sin unto death. That God is so committed to our holiness that He'll promote you if that's the only way He can get you there. I see, we should be confident in this that He who began a good work in you will take it to completion. And that's not just salvation, that's also sanctification. He is working in you. I want to give you a challenge in 2020. Work with Him. Work with Him in your sanctification and He will make you more like Christ. Work against Him in your sanctification and He will start getting your attention until you want to be more like Christ. You see, uh, we ought not make light of the Lord's discipline. The refiner's fire will purify us, but if we are steadfast in our impurity, we may find that a master craftsman will have to increase the heat and more forcefully beat the rebellious ore of our lives until we are forged into sharp instruments ready to do battle for the King's service. We're the army of God not the league of complainers for Christ. Now, since being part of God's family does not mean that we're always living in a way that pleases God, and and, and since being part of God's family does not mean we're immune to temptation and transgression or even God's discipline, that brings us to point three. Point three is this. Therefore, as part of God's family, you and I need to be vigilant, we need to be persevering, we need to be actively seeking the way of escape from temptation. We need to be vigilant, we need to be persevering, we need to be actively seeking the way of escape from temptation. This is very clear in verses 12 through 15. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, vigilance, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to, what's that word? Yeah, there's an endurance. There's a persevering under temptation. 
Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Satan loves to tell those of us who are losing in our battles with temptation. He loves to tell us that our struggle with sin is unique. That, that only you struggle so immensely and intensely. And that's utter rubbish because the Word of God says no temptation has overtaken you except what's common to And Satan loves to tell those of you who are winning in your battles against temptation. He says, you're fine. You're going to easily walk this line. But no, 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 that isn't so, according to the Bible. You see, arrogance will lull us into indifference, and that will lead to intransigence. Take heed lest you... Remember, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction. Therefore, anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed, lest he fall. And when we find ourselves in the grip of that temptation, we must remember God is faithful. You know what it doesn't say? You're really good at beating temptation. Because you might not be. God is faithful. If you're here today and you lost a lot in 2019 with the sin that easily entangles, 2020 is a new year. But there's the same God. Maybe you tried to fight 2019 in your strength, doing good things for God instead of in His strength. Taking up the spiritual armor that God has provided that you might be able to stand and withstand God is faithful. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, He will also provide the way of escape. There is a way of escape to every temptation. It's God's way that you may be able to endure it. So so let's unpack those verses for just a moment. Firstly, God promises we will have to endure temptation as a Christian. There's no one here today that's going to get a free pass from temptation. You need to know that because when we get tempted, we think, why is this happening to? And the answer is it's happening to everybody. Number two, God promises He will provide the, circle that word, the way of escape. He doesn't say He's going to provide a way of escape. Here's ten ways to get out of this. He says there's His way. There's God's way. The way. In In the Greek text, there's a definite article, the way. Now, God's way of escape works, but you've got to take it. And so, there are certain temptations the Bible says we should flee from that we want, to, we want to flirt with. We want to see how close we can get to without falling over. And the answer is, you get too close, you're going to... The question isn't if you will fall, it's when you will fall. And there are certain things the Bible says, just go that way, because that is the wrong way. But we think we know more than God. And we don't. Thirdly, this verse is speaking about temptation, not trials. Because every once in a while somebody takes this verse and speaks about trials. It's not what it says. Friends, you and I go through trials, and trials are often going to be more than you can bear. Why? So you learn that God is able to help you bear them. You, you wouldn't need a God if you could do everything that comes at you in trials. But temptations and trials are different in their context. And so, when it comes to temptation, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There are going to be things that come in your life 
that you can't handle without Jesus. Those are trials. They let you know that there's a God. When it comes to temptation, it's also the same. The difference is he's asking you to take Jesus' way out of the temptation. Not from being tempted, but so that you can be an overcomer in the temptation. Temptation is powerful, but succumbing to it is not inevitable. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it, because temptation is our common challenge, isn't it? No saint gets a pass. The Old Testament Israelites, well, they were tempted. And so were the New Testament Corinthians. And so is going to be Calvary Church in 2020. Lord, I feel it. Prone to be holy. It comes to me naturally. That's the hymn, right? No, Lord, I feel it. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I... These are people who love God, but there's pleasure in sin for a season. And we kind of want a handful of both. And that's not so good. Therefore, as God's family, we must be vigilant, persevering, and actively seeking the way of escape, or we will find ourselves missing the blessings we could be possessing. And so to those in, let's pray today. Lord Jesus, we've had disruption and interruption. It came at sort of a focal moment where we were shifting from their blessings to the areas of their transgressings. And uh, you are sovereign, but the enemy is real. And it strikes me that at the very moment that we should be tuning in to say, I don't want to be in the wilderness wandering, missing my blessing, was the very moment that we might have tuned out. And uh, so Lord, I, I just pray that you would help us in this new year. Temptation is our common challenge. And so, Father, we ask that you would please help us to be overcomers. Help us this week to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked for out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We're so grateful for Jesus. I'm grateful for the truth of Matthew 4. The Bible says Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And we go, how could the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into a place of temptation? But then we remember that if Jesus is ever going to save us from that which enslaves us, then He needed victory in the very arena where we only find defeat. And we know that arena is temptation. Thank you, Jesus, that you're like us. You've been tempted in all points, you understand. And thank you, Jesus, you are not like us. You were tempted in all points and yet found without sin. You took temptation to the nth degree. We give in and yield, and you endure the full bore, full load, refusing any of its pleasure even for an instant. Thank You, Jesus, that You defeated sin and the devil, not by being exempted from temptation, but by enduring temptation and never once succumbing. Thank You that You can say in John 8 that I always do the will of my Father. Lord, would You help us in 2020 to do Thy will on earth as it is in heaven. Help us in this coming year to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, perhaps like never before. 
We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.